Oh boy, now people are coming here. Jesus Christ. Hey guys, it's Kurt Graves. I just had the incredible privilege to watch TJ Klune's virtual launch party for the house in the Cerulean Sea via Instagram Live. I saw over 200 of you guys were watching with me. Um, I also had the incredible privilege of getting name checked a couple times, so that was exciting. Um, for those of you who were not able to join uh, TJ's Instagram Live virtual launch party, uh, he did give me permission to record the audio and to put it out as a part of our podcast feed. So I'm going to shut up. I'm going to get out of the way and uh, we'll let TJ do his thing. Let me, let me, let me at least talk about why we're here. First and foremost, um, in case you don't know, which is really awkward. If you don't, I'm TJ Clune and you have somehow stumbled onto my Instagram live first live video I've ever done before. Um, I am the ha author of The House in the Cerulean Sea, which just came out today. Hooray! Um, it come out from Tor, and that's the reason we get to all be here today. Um, I know things were supposed to happen a bit differently. As you can obviously tell, I'm not in a Barnes & Noble. Hi, hello. Um, the Barnes & Noble... Apparently, like every Barnes & Noble now across the country is closing early um, because it is due to the coronavirus. So there's like a mandate from their corporate office that every single um, every single Barnes & Noble now closes early. And I know I know things are supposed to happen a bit differently in a different version of the world. Many of you might be here with me at a Barnes & Noble's listening to me talk in person. Um, watching as I fumble my way through this awkwardly. But um, unfortunately, that's not going to be the case, given how things are right now. Um, I just wanted to take a moment to say that I, th I think we're going to be okay. As long as we take care of each other from a respectable distance, of course, <laughs> you know, we'll get through this. It, it may take time and things might have to be a little different for a while. But we'll come through it all right in the end. Um, I know a lot is uncertain right now, and that seems to be getting a little worse every day. Um, we could all use a little happiness, which is why I'm glad that this book, The House in the Cerulean Sea, is coming out when it is. Though the timing really, really, really sucks. I think the story is one that we could all use right now. So let's let's start, Okay. I have this whole spiel that I'm going to do, so just bear with me, and I have all my notes and everything. You just can't see them, so when you see me glance off screen, that's just because I'm trying to keep my place. It helps me. Hi, Deidre Knight. That's my agent. Um, so as many of you probably know, and there's Allie, my editor. That's wonderful. Um, I am an intensely private person. Uh, though I do share bits and pieces of myself online and through my books, I tend to remain a bit guarded. Um, it's just for my own peace of mind because, you know, not that I think I'm so high and mighty that, ooh, I'm going to have a stalker. That's not what I'm thinking. It's just I, I try to keep certain parts of my life separate from um, my author life for the most part. Um, that being said, 
I want to, to, to make you understand why I am here the way I am now, why I've written these books that I have, especially Cerulean. I want to give you a bit of background on me and, and where I came from and what I, how I became the person I am today. Touching my head. Um, I was born and raised in very, very rural Oregon, which obviously tends to be the setting for most of my books. Um, I grew up in a poor area outside of Roseburg called Melrose. We lived out in the middle of nowhere, and I was the <laughs> loud, overtalkative, effeminate kid that does not do well in rural areas. <laughs> um, I used uh, books as an escape. There was the library in Roseburg, the Douglas County Public Library, and I spent um, most of my summers at this library. And my library card was my greatest thing that I owned. I could spend hundreds of hours reading um, whatever I could get my hands on. It didn't matter the topic. It didn't matter if it was fiction or nonfiction. Um, it didn't matter if it was far above my reading level. I kind of wanted to read it all. Um, I loved... I mean, we're talking like eight, nine-year-old, 10-year-old me reading Wilson Rawls and Dean Koontz and Stephen King, Robert McCammon, Patricia Nell Warren, Bill Watterson through because of Calvin and Hobbes. Um, and it's through all these books and so many more that I was able to leave my world behind, at least for a little while. Um, and when you're a kid who is 12, 13 years old, living in basically the redneck capital of Oregon, which I can say that because I was redneck trailer trash. It's hard because you are not really understanding how you should be. You see how everybody else is, but you don't really know how you yourself should act. Um, the library was my safe haven. Uh, a few years ago, unfortunately, it was announced that this library was going to close due to lack of funding and I was devastated by that news. Um, that place saved me, and it was the only library in Douglas County. Um, and it ended up, unfortunately, ended up actually closing, but uh, so they, they were actually able to reopen a few months later, and they got the funding they needed. But now it's, it's, not, it's not open as many hours as it used to be. But I... I, I I know for a fact that there have to be kids there who are just like me that need a place like the library because without it, I don't know what would have happened to me. Honestly, I really, really don't. And obviously it was through my love of reading that I found my love of writing. So <laughs> stick with me here because this is a, this is a freaking adventure. So when I was um, six or seven, I had this notebook that I carried with me and it was... I, I, I filled it with stories about my adventures with Samus Aran, a character from a video game called Metroid. In the game, you're this hardcore space marine with a gun for an arm, and you go around shooting all the aliens and trying to save humanity. And at, in a twist at the end of the game, the space marine who's in the, this full hardcore armor takes off their helmet, and the character you've been playing this whole time is revealed to actually be a woman. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to marry you, which is weird because I'm really kind of gay, even though I'm only six. Um, the, the, 
it, it entranced me so much so that I, I carried around this notebook where I started filling it with stories of me and, and Samus Aran fighting against the, the villain from the game, Mother Brain. And um, we would go on adventures together. And the one thing that sticks out, <laughs> the one thing that sticks out at me the most is for whatever reason, I was very fond of the phrase, have to, H-A-V-E-T-O. We have to do this. We have to do that. We have to go here. We have to go there. Except I spelled half every time H-A-L-F. And it was just, I was an awkward kid, man. <laughs> but I, I, I still have one of these notebooks, actually. I, I, I found it when, before I moved into this house. It's somewhere stored away and I was reading through it. And I don't know if, if you understand the level of secondhand embarrassment that I got from that, like, like I had an entire full body cringe, like a prolapse button. Oh, not going to say it. Sorry, children. There might be children. Um, anyways, back to where was I? Um, I began to move from there uh, after my fan fiction start with Samus Aran. I began to move away from writing about existing stories to writing, uh, wanting to write original work. Um, when I was in the seventh grade, I had two teachers, my English teachers, Mrs. Bentz and Mrs. Pfeiffer. They um, were probably the most influential on me as a teenager when it came to writing. Um, we had this assignment. They gave us this assignment when, we, when I was in seventh grade where we had to take a memory we had and turn it into fiction to tell a comedic story. I don't quite remember what I wrote about, but what I do remember is watching through as Mrs. Bentz started reading through our stories. Um, and I was like sweating hardcore because I could see my very identifiable folder, new kids on the block, <laughs> getting closer and closer to the top. And I was freaking out because I, I was thinking, Oh my God, what if they don't like it? What if it sucks? What if it's bad? Um, when Mrs. Bentz finally started reading mine, um, I, I was kind of doing this whole watching her out of the corner of my eye, pretending to work. She started chuckling and then laughing louder and louder. And then she pulled Mrs. Pfeiffer over to read. By the end, they were laughing so hard. They were crying. They told me that they loved the story. And it was then that I realized the power of written word that it could bring joy and happiness to others. And in my last class with them, they told me that they couldn't wait until they saw, uh, they couldn't wait until the day that came that they saw one of my books on a shelf in a store. Um, and I actually, I can't remember which book it is, but I actually dedicated one of my books to them um, because they, they set me on a path that I don't know if, if I hadn't had them as teachers that I would have been on, especially since the next year, um, my teacher, then <laughs> I dedicated a book to her too. When she told me that she said that my writing wasn't going to amount to anything. And then I dedicated like my 20th book to her. So, um, <laughs> she's probably not alive anymore. She was like 800 years old then. So whatever, but Mrs. Bentz and Mrs. Pfeiffer, it was their voices I heard when back in 2010, I decided to sit down and write a book as one sometimes does. Um, the story that I wrote is about a queer guy in Oregon who's left in charge of his younger brother as his family disintegrates around him all while dealing with feelings he has for his best friend's older brother. 
That book became Bear Otter and the Kid, my very first to be published. It came out nine years ago this August, 2011, August 2011. And I told myself if even one person read it and walked away learning something new, then I would have done my job. I was very fortunate in that more than one person ended up reading it. And it went on to be cited by Amazon as one of the top 20 fiction, nonfiction queer books published in 2011. And from there, I just never looked back. Um, in 2000, what was it? 14, 15, my fifth novel into this river I drowned, which was a meditation on loss and the power of grief after the death of a revered parent went on to win the Lambda Literary Award, which is one of the highest uh, points of my writing career. That's pretty neat when people give you trophies and awards for stuff. It makes you feel validated. Um, to date, I have published over 20 books from contemporary to science fiction to fantasy. I worked my butt off and in 2016, I was able to quit my job of 10 freaking years at an insurance company to write full time. Uh, obviously, I'm super grateful for the trust that my readers, the lovingly named Clunatics, have put in me to be able to do that, um, even though it was one of the scariest decisions I ever made in my entire life. Um, but it was important to me, and not just because I wouldn't be chained to a cubicle working at an insurance company whose lizard commercials you probably all know and despise just as much as I do, but because I'd have more time to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. The through line for all of my books is that they're about queer people from all walks of life. And that is important to me because own voices are a necessity. We need queer people telling queer stories, but not just for queer people. They're for everyone who wants to read them. <laughs> Here's another little story, a little sidebar. For fast forward to 2017, okay? I wanted to try something different. Yes, it was a major part of that had to do with the <clears throat> publisher that shall not be named. Um, but I also wanted to see what else was out there. Um, so <laughs> I wrote two books, one at the beginning of two or one at the end of 2017 and one at the beginning of 2018. I contacted at that point in my infinite wisdom, uh, an agent who'd read one of my books previously, Hi Deidre, um, and had reached out wanting to represent me. I think she'd read Wolf Song and she wanted to, uh, she wanted to talk about representation. <laughs> At that point, I said, no, I'm good. I'm good. Because of, um, at that point in my career, I was only writing sequels and I was thinking, oh man, if I get this agent, then, then even though these books are contracted, she's going to get part of my money. So no, absolutely not. <laughs> so fortunately, I went crawling back to her and said, hey, I wrote these two new books. Um, what do you think when you want to read them and, and tell me what you think? So Deidre Knight read both books and signed me on as her client and then changed everything absolutely everything for me. Through her hard work on my behalf, I signed two three-book deals with Tor. Boom! I got, I got three standalone adult books and three YA books, which would turn into a um, trilogy, something that, you know, never, ever happens in YA. Um, 
but I, I, I couldn't be happier, not just because it meant my books would reach a wider audience, but because my wonderful, lovely, fantastic new publisher understands the value of queer voices and is affording me an opportunity that I couldn't have envisioned in my wildest dreams. So let's talk about the reason that I get to be here today. It's because of this book, The House in the Cerulean Sea. Now, I'm going to give you the little spiel first, just because I have to, and it's just something that I want to say. The House in the Cerulean Sea is a whimsical standalone novel following the character of Linus Baker, uh, by the book's caseworker in the department in charge of magical youth. He's sent on a top-secret mission to an orphanage on Marcius Island, where he's charged with determining whether six dangerous magical children are likely to bring about the end of the world. Um, Linus is sent to investigate them all, but Arthur Parnassus, the eminently charming and mysterious master of the orphanage, will do anything to keep the children safe, even if it means the world will burn. This book... It's a story about queer love, found family, and seeing people for who they really are rather than what the world wants them to be. And while Linus, a fussy man in his 40s who lives by the rules, is the narrator, the children he comes into contact with are honestly, as everybody probably knows, the true star. I should not have looked at the number of people watching now because I instantly just got flop sweat. <laughs> like my underboob just got, oh man, children. I forgot. Children. It's okay to talk about under boob sweat. Um, the children in <laughs> the house in this early sea. There is Talia, a girl garden gnome with a long flowing beard and a propensity to threaten anyone she thinks will hurt her family by preemptively digging their graves in her garden. A forest sprite named Fee who distrusts anyone she doesn't know and can grow trees out of nothing. A wyvern, a small dragon, called Theodore, who hoards buttons underneath the couch. An amorphous green blob named Chauncey, who wants to be a bellhop more than anything in the world, and he is made of pure sunshine, and he is my favorite. Sal is the oldest of the bunch and the quietest. He also happens to be a shifter. Now, if you have followed me for any length of time, chances are you've heard of a tiny little book series called Green Creek. So you know I have already written about shifters before werewolves. So when I sat down to write this book, I thought, you know what? Let's not make him a werewolf. Let's make him a were... fill in the blank. And then I was randomly on some website. I don't remember, but there was a Pomeranian. And I was like, <laughs> Pomeranian. He's a, he's, a, he's a were Pomeranian. You know... Writing this stuff down is very good and it makes sense, but when you talk about it out loud, I cannot believe that Tor signed me for this book. <laughs> Thank you, Tor. <laughs> I love you. And the last child is six-year-old Lucy, who I honestly expect will be the favorite of many. He is wicked sharp, he is heartbreakingly funny, and loves what he calls dead people music, like the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and Buddy Holly, and he is the Antichrist. So I had been toying around with the idea of magic something for a long time. I'd already delved into the world of magic before with a, a book series called Tales from Verania that is most likely not suitable for me to discuss in very much detail at all. Um, so <laughs> just know that how can I describe that series? 
A unicorn screws a dragon. That's all you need to know. It's a unicorn screws a dragon and uses a lead character's name as a safe word. It's, it is what it is. So um, I had I had this idea of magic something again. Um, I knew that children would be involved and that discrimination against who they were and what they could do would be at the forefront. But I wasn't quite sure how to make the pieces fit. Um, I had visions of a Studio Ghibli aesthetic like Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle um, by way of Tim Burton uh, with more than a little pinch of Edward Gorey thrown in the mix. I have this print hanging above my desk of the Gashly Crumb Tinies. Uh, and the more I looked at it, the clearer the picture became in my head, but I couldn't quite get it to where I wanted it to be. Oh, another sidebar. This is going to happen, so just go with it. When you get done watching this, go onto my Twitter and look at my last retweet because Mariana, man, she did the cast of The House in the Cerulean Sea by way of Edward Gorey and the Gashley Comes Tiny. And it is just, I love it so much. And I just touched my face again. I'm sorry. So <clears throat> I decided to start researching orphanages in the 19th and the 20th centuries, which as per usual for me, led me to my favorite website in the entire world, Wikipedia. I love Wikipedia more than I can say. I have been, uh, I can spend hours on it clicking through articles until I'm nowhere near the topic I started on. Um, through my research, I ended up on something called the 60s scoop. Beginning in the late 1950s and continuing through the 80s, the Canadian government took indigenous children from their homes and families and put them into government-sanctioned facilities. The goal, as it were, was to foster or to adopt indigenous children out to primarily white, middle-class families from Europe, America, and uh, Canada. It's estimated that over 20,000 children were taken from their homes. Lawsuits were filed in the uh, early 2000s, but it actually wasn't until 2017, 2017, three years ago, that the victims of the 60 scoop were awarded any kind of compensation for what they'd been through. I think we're, um, we're often in bubbles of our own making, and we tend to focus on the now, what's around us that has an immediate effect on our lives. It is however, to me, a flimsy excuse for not knowing about the wider world around us. The more I researched, the more stories I found in the history of our, my own country, America, and abroad about children being taken from their homes because they were different. The basis of this was stark assimilation. To those, to, they basically wanted to make those they didn't understand like them because anything other than familiarity was terrifying. And so I sat down to write careful with how I did so. It was important to me that I get this right because the onus was and is on me. I began to tell the story of magical children who came from families in an Orwellian society where the government sees all and knows all. These children were something to be feared because they were different and therefore needed to be corralled together and put into government-run orphanages overseen by employees called masters who answer to the caseworkers of the department in charge of magical youth. The story I started out to tell isn't the story that you're going to read in The House in the Cerulean Sea. It changed on me and for the better. While it does deal with some heavier themes, this book is a gentle comedic fantasy reminiscent of older works in the genre that we really don't see much anymore. I was very desperate 
to see good in the world and to put kindness out there through the written word. These days we are angry all the time. We're fed a diet of outrage. The world is on fire and everyone seems to hate everyone else. The news is dire almost every day and more and more we hear stories of queer people, people of color, people whose faith helped to guide them, all suffering because we're not others. We're not what others think we should be. We're not assimilated. See something, say something. It's a mantra that repeated throughout the House of the Cerulean Sea, which is a mandate set forth by the government. The lead character, Linus, is a cog in a bureaucratic machine, listening to those in charge while keeping his head down and doing his job to the best of his ability. He does care for all the children he comes into contact with, but by the time the book opens, uh, he's stuck under the weight of the society in which he lives, a dreary place where the rain never ends. It's not until he arrives on Marcius Island at the orphanage and gets to know the people there that he sees just how much he's gone through life with blinders on, doing what he was told because it was expected of him. He lives in a bubble. Change, Linus is told, starts with someone speaking for those who can't speak for themselves. During his investigation of this orphanage and its inhabitants, he begins to see how wrong he's been and what his actions have unwittingly wrought. He also finds himself growing closer to Arthur, uh, the master of the orphanage, something he never saw happening for him. Sorry, my dog just, my dog farted and I have to sit right here in it. I can't move. <laughs> Jesus. Oof. I don't even know where I was now. Live stream is over. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, he finds himself growing closer to Arthur, uh, something that he never saw happening for himself. Um, though the children are at the forefront of his realization uh, of that the world isn't how it should be, it's through his burgeoning relationship with Arthur that he begins to understand that he must step outside his carefully constructed life in order to find the truth. It's my hope that people will reach the final page in Cerulean and stop and think about how they act towards others who are different, others who aren't like them. Um, my, my big hope, honest to God, for this is that parents, I know there's parents watching, I'm sorry, but I hope that you'll read this book with your kids. I hope that you guys will, will read it together. When you finish, talk about it. Talk about it, what it means, what, what the lessons you could learn from it. Um, are and how you could pay that forward. Um, it may sound, honestly, it may sound a bit trite, but the truth, the truth sometimes is. Cerulean is about speaking for those who don't have a voice and enacting change through goodwill and kindness. It is fantasy, it is fiction, but I wish it didn't have to be, especially after, when, after I finished writing the book in the spring of 2018, in the summer of 2018, News of what was occurring at our southern border came to light about families seeking a better life being separated uh, from each other and put into government-sanctioned facilities. I was horrified to see something so devastating rear its ugly head again, uh, which is why I believe now more than ever that we must be kind to each other and that we have to stand up for those who need our help. But there are also times that we need to shut up and listen because if we don't, our good intentions could end up drowning out even the quietest of voices. So that was my big old spiel about the book. It's pretty good, right? I think I did okay. Thank you for listening so far. Now, I am going to do two more things, okay? I'm going to read a little bit from this book. 
Now, here's the thing. I do not narrate. I am not a narrator. Um, so I, I'm not going to be like Michael Leslie or Kurt Graves or the amazing Daniel Henning who narrates this book and do voices because it's not a good thing for me to do. So what I am going to do, though, is I'm going to read <clears throat> a little bit from my favorite part. One of my favorite parts. I have many favorite parts. This isn't even my top favorite part. Why am I reading this part? Oh, that's right. I remember why I wanted to read this. Okay. <laughs> so this is shortly after Linus gets to the island and he has met Talia, the girl garden gnome. And she is trying to help him find Calliope, his cat, who has run off into her garden. Talia led them through the garden around the side of the house, though he hadn't been able to see from the road. The light was fading, and he could see stars appearing overhead. The air was cool now, and he shivered. Talia, for her part, pointed out every single flower they came across, telling them their names and when she planted them. She warned him not to touch them, or she'd have to hit him upside the head with her shovel. Linus didn't dare try her. She obviously had a propensity for violence, and he needed to remember that for his reports. This investigation wasn't off to a great start. He had many concerns, specifically that all these children appeared to be scattered about. Where is the master of the house? Linus asked as they left the garden behind. Why isn't he keeping an eye out for you? Arthur, Talia asked. Why on earth would he? Mr. Parnassus, Linus insisted. It's only polite to refer him by a proper name, and he should be because you're a child. I'm 263 years old. And gnomes don't reach the age of maturity until they're 500, Linus said. You may think me a fool, but that would be a mistake. She grumbled something in what Linus was now convinced was gnomish. From five in the afternoon until seven, we're given time for personal pursuits. Arthur, oh, excuse me, Mr. Parnassus, believes we should explore whatever interests us. Highly unusual, Linus muttered. Talia glanced at him. Is it? Don't you do things you like after you get done working? Well, yes. Yes, he did. But he was an adult, and that was different. What if one of you gets hurt while in your personal pursuits? He can't be lazing about while... He's not lazing about, Talia exclaimed. He works with Lucy to make sure he doesn't bring about the end of the world as we know it. It was about this time that Linus felt his vision gray yet again at the thought of this, this child, this Lucy. He couldn't believe that such a creature existed without his knowledge, without the world's knowledge. Oh, he understood why there was secrecy and could even comprehend the need for it. But the fact that there was a weapon of mass destruction in the body of a six-year-old and the world wasn't prepared was simply shocking. You've gone awfully pale, Talia said as she squinted up at him, and you're swaying. Are you ill? If you are, I think we should go back to the garden so you can die there. I don't want to have to drag you all the way back. You look really heavy. She reached up and poked his stomach. So soft. Strangely, that simple action managed to clear his vision. I'm not ill, he snapped at her. I'm just, I'm processing. Oh, that's too bad. If your left upper arm starts to hurt, would you let me know? Why would I? That's a sign of a heart attack, isn't it? She nodded. I demand you take me to Mr. Parnassus this instant. She cocked her head at him. But what about your cat? Don't you want to find her before she gets eaten and all that's left of her is a tail because it's too fluffy to choke down? This is very perturbing and irregular. If this is the way this orphanage is run, I will need to inform her eyes widened before she grabbed him by the hand and began to pull him. We're fine. See, everything is fine. I'm not dead and you're not dead. Nobody is hurt. 
After all, we're on an island with no way on or off aside from a ferry. And the house has electricity and working toilets, something we're very proud of. What could possibly happen to any of us? And Zoe keeps an eye on us. When Mr. Parnassus is otherwise detained, Zoe, Linus demanded, who is, oh, I met Miss Chapelwhite, Talia said hastily. She's wonderful, so caring, everyone says so, and distantly related to a fairy king named Dimitri, if you can believe that, though he's not from around these parts. This is the point where I pretend I'm on the TV show, The Office, and I stare at the camera, ironically, for a little while and a bit of time. Because Zoe, the sprite, is distantly related to a fairy king named Dimitri. I wonder where that's from. Linus's mind was a whirlwind. What do you mean, fairy king? I've never... So you see, there's absolutely nothing to worry about. We've always monitored with everything we do, so no need to inform anyone of anything. And would you look at that? I knew Sal would have your cat. Animals love him. He's the best. See? Calliope looks so happy, doesn't she? And indeed, she did. Look at that. Wasn't that good? Now, I know that there's probably like a bunch of you that have questions, but to make gay gasp, damn right, John from Albuquerque, gay gasp. That's how I do it. Um, I have questions that my clunatic group put up, so I'm going to answer a few of them now while I can. I have them written down, so then I will look up here, and if you all have any questions that weren't answered, you can let me know. So, um, I'm going to leave out names because I didn't get permission to use names on this. So, will you be setting more books in the world of House and Cerulean Sea? God damn it. I haven't looked at these questions. <laughs> I haven't looked at these questions yet. I had somebody else write them down for me so I could, I could, um, go into them fresh. Stop asking for sequels. What is wrong with all of you? No, I'm not going to, I don't know. No, no, maybe, no. Um, how did it feel when you finally got to hold your hardcover for Cerulean for the first time? It was the best feeling in the world. I mean, when I was a kid, let me tell you this real quick. When I was a kid, I used to take the covers off of books so I could see stuff like this on the spine because I loved how you could feel the letters on the spine and the name. And when I first got the cover, when I first got the hardcover, I loved this cover, but I took the cover off and ran my fingers along the spine because I loved it so much. Um, have you ever created a character so strange you couldn't place it in a book? Yes. And there was actually a character I had planned for Cerulean that I took out because it was just too much. But I put him or her or it in the book I'm currently writing, which is Tales from Verania 5. Moving on. Nobody cares about that. Thank you for writing so the Clunatric group could come about. I hope it's as special to you as it is to us. Aw. Does it bring you as much joy as it does us? Yes. I love, I love the Clunatic so, so much. 
if someone hasn't read a book by you before, would you, why, why would you suggest they start with this one? Because they shouldn't start with the lightning struck heart or into this river I drown. <laughs> In all seriousness, this book is, if you want to feel happy, if you want to know that things might be okay, if you want to get to the last page and sigh with happiness as you close the book, that's why you should start with this one. Do you have a favorite of your books or a favorite relationship of your guys? Yes, I have three. How to be a normal person, how to be a movie star, and this one. These are three books that when I finished, I had a sigh of happiness because they made me so happy. So those three are my favorite. Doesn't mean I love the others any less, just not as much as parents do. Which of your book or book series would you like to have most adapted to film or TV and why? Green Creek, Green Creek, the world needs gay werewolves doing gay werewolf stuff. And also Tales from Verania as a Pixar movie. <laughs> An adult Pixar movie. Tell us a story about someone, about something someone said that really stuck with you. It could be some something someone said about you, your writing, or something completely unrelated, whatever you want. Oh. When my first book came out, someone told me, there will be people who like your book, there will be people who love your book. There will people who be people who dislike your book, there will be people who hate your book. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And that stuck with me this whole time. I see a lot of authors posting about bad reviews they've gotten. And this is not a good look, man. This, reviews aren't for you. Yes, they're fun and nice when you get a good review and everybody, you know, you feel good. But stop go, stop looking for bad reviews. What's the point of that? You're not going to, you're just going to make you mad and then you're going to do something stupid like post about it online, which you should never, ever do. Are any of your characters based on real people? And if so, do they know that? <laughs> yes. And no, they don't. Um, where did you get the inspiration for these characters? I'm assuming from House in the Cerulean Sea. Um, well, I guess I kind of covered that when we were talking uh, uh, through my whole spiel, but I, I wanted them to be different from each other to each have their own special magical ability. But I also wanted them to be so different that even if there were no dialogue tags to show you who was speaking, you would know who they are. Because they are, um, each of the six children, to me, or the children are just so unique. And what I love about this book, oh my God, I'm talking about myself like this. What I love about it though, is that they their personalities just leap from the page. And it makes me feel happy to know that they are so different and yet so connected to each other. Um, and I don't know. I just like them as they are. How happy does it make you to know that the shipping name between Linus and Arthur is Anus? <laughs> I forgot that I did that. That's right. Linus and Arthur, it's Anus. <laughs> that makes me very happy. That makes me very happy. Thank you. How does it feel to know that you wrote this profound philosophical work that'll help the masses get a little bit woke? Whoa, that's hardcore. Thank you. Um, 
It makes me feel good, I guess. Let me, let me put it like this. So there's this, um, the inspiration for Linus was twofold. At the beginning of the book, he's in the city where the rain never ends. It's always raining. He gets to be, find his bright burst of color when he goes to the island. That was me and my homage essentially to the Wizard of Oz, the, the sepia-toned beginning. And then when she gets to Oz, everything turns to color, bright and beautiful color. And that's what I wanted for Arthur or for Linus. But at the same time, Linus is also going through um, what's known as Plato's allegory of the cave. And if you don't know what that is, essentially it's this idea that if you chain people in a cave facing the back cave wall and never let them turn around and people pass back and forth in front of the cave, the people that are chained in the cave see these shadows coming by. And if, you, if they're there long enough, those shadows become their reality. And it's not until they are unchained and get to step back out into the sun for the first time that they realize that reality that they were living in was manufactured. And that is what Linus is. Linus is basically in Plato's cave until he gets to the island and where he sees the sun for the first time. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's discussions of Kant, Kantian philosophy, moral philosophy in the book. Um, and basically it's just trying to show what it means to be a good person and that it doesn't, it's not always as black and white as some people think that it is. Uh, what character in your books do you relate to the most? Gustavo Tiberius. That is my boy. Are there any voices in your head you totally not you have totally not been able to work with? Like really shut them down because they just might get you committed? No, because if I did that, there would be no Sam of Wilds. <laughs> yeah, I don't tend to have a filter, so I um write down whatever's in my head. With the social distancing and only takeout, my life hasn't changed one bit. How are you dealing with self-isolation? Very, very well. Because I love not having to talk to people <laughs> like I'm doing right now. All 200 plus of you. <laughs> no, this is fun. But I... I am, I am happiest when I'm working. So it's very good for me to be like, everybody's like, oh no, I'm stuck in my house. I'm like, yay, I'm stuck in my house. You seem to take, have taken a perceived problem with your brain never shutting up or shutting down into a strength of getting all these wonderful stories together. And I'm especially impressed with how you can write such different books and universes in mixed up order and have things planned for such a long way to advance. However, I suspect that the guy we see as charming and charmingly awkward today has been through some darker days. What would you, what would be your advice to your younger self on how to get through that? Whoa. Um, don't give up. It's going to get hard. It's going to suck. There are going to be some very, very bad days when you won't want to feel like getting out of bed. But as long as you can take a breath, you can take a step and you'll get through the darkness. Also, therapy and Lexapro. Take your medicine. Um, years ago, I was lucky enough to attend a reading by Walter Littlemoon. They call me uncivilized. He had been the victim of federal Indian policies that removed him from his home as a kindergartner and sent him to the U.S. boarding schools. Um, 
But were there specific personal accounts from the 60s scoop that you drew from? Can you talk a little bit more about the relevance of the parallels between the trauma and current events? So I love podcasts. I love, love, love podcasts. I listen to podcasts when I'm at home, when I'm writing, when I'm working, when I'm doing chores, when I'm running, when I'm exercising, all of that. I love podcasts. After I found out about the 60s scoop, um, I found a podcast by CBC Radio um, with a wonderful narrator. Um, her name escapes me at the moment, but the podcast is called Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. And in this podcast, a little girl, Cleo, was taken from her family in the 80s. And the point of the podcast was the reporter joined up with Cleo's brother and sister to try to find out where she was and what happened to her. They thought she had been um, murdered. And the, the podcast was their journey to try to find out what happened to um, Cleo. And the truth, on, I'm not going to, I won't spoil it here. And I, I think it needs to be heard to be believed. But the truth of what happened to Cleo was infinitely more devastating. And I know you're thinking, what's more devastating than murder? It, it was rough. It was bad. But they were able to find some peace. And that stuck with me. That stuck with me terribly because it was such a heartbreaking and heartrending story. And it just, it blew my mind because Cleo was taken from her home in the 80s. I know we're, we're in 2020 now and that the 80s is, is a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago that this was going on. And it just, I don't know. I recommend that everybody listen to Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo um, if you want to get a good insight from an indigenous reporter talking about the, what happened at the uh, two indigenous children and some of a lot of whom were put into what are known as residential schools, which is not a good place. Um, so, yeah, as writers with long term series struggle to finish them, what is the secret to your remarkable productivity? As a former book pimp, I have more experience and I would like telling customers that the author just hasn't finished her book yet. And you have eight waiting that we don't know anything about yet. How? I don't stop writing. <laughs> I don't. I really, really don't. I started Justin's book in what? The end of January and it's at 100,000 words now. I just, I have to keep going. I love it. I love it more than anything in the world. So that's what I do. <clears throat> there are situations that we all recognize from sci-fi and comics in the setup of this story, a government trying to sanction and control a specific faction of society and MC starting as a slavish cog in bureaucracy an elite high council that passes judgment. Was including sci-fi elements in this gentle fantasy intentional? No, not particularly. I basically took my own former job as a cubicle drone with overseen by management and incre increased it to the nth degree. And uh, that's essentially what it's come from. So this book is basically my fuck you to corporate culture. Um. Of all the ideas you have floating through your head, why did you choose Cerulean for your first big book? I don't know. It just felt like a story that, that many people would be able to relate to, or at least I hoped. Um, and it didn't hurt that <laughs> Allie at Tor, my editor, was like, sure, we'll take this one too, and plus maybe like five more. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm good with that. Thank you. 
Um, you have said you said that all three adult fantasy books from Tor have the connecting thread of moral philosophy. How did you decide on this theme? Because I am positively fascinated by by moral philosophy and 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 all that entails, uh, specifically <clears throat> the idea of right and wrong and all the shades of gray that go in between. And the next two books um, <clears throat> that will come from Tor also have the same through lines. And it's just because of the, the types of stories that they are. I'm trying to be very careful because I know Tor is watching me right now and I don't want to <laughs> say anything I'm not supposed to. Um, I'll just leave it at that just to be safe. What does a typical day of writing look like for you? You're able to finish so many books in such a quick timeline. How do you do it? I get up at 6.30 in the morning. No, let, that, let me walk that back. I actually get up at 5.30 in the morning. I sit down and start writing at 6.30. I keep writing until 12.30, 1 o'clock every single day. Some days are very, very productive days. Some days are very, very not productive, unproductive. This is why I need an editor. Um, <clears throat> I write a lot, yes, but I don't want people to think that I am... I, every word I write is a good word because it's not. I typically get around 5,000 words a day and maybe half that are words that I will want to keep. So this book is advertised for ages 12 plus. Why are you excited for young people to read this? What specifically do they have to gain? They, I hope, will... Let me walk that back. Children are much savvier then I think we give them credit for. They don't all have to be precocious know-it-alls, but they 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 know when something's not right. They know that, you know, how things are and how they should be and how they shouldn't be. I'm hoping with this I can help them explore that notion, those ideas that of what it means to be different, what it means to be accepting of people who are different and how we can help create a safe place for people who are different not to feel so ostracized. Um, and I hope that they go out there knowing that everything doesn't have to be sad and dire all the time. So, facts, kids know what the fuck is up. <gasps> Think of the children, as Sam of Wilds would say. <clears throat> out of all the books you've written so far, which was the hardest to write? which was the easiest, how long does it take you to write a book? Out of all the books I've written, the hardest to write, two of them. Into This River I Drown, because that book was essentially about my father who died when I was a kid, and that dredged up a whole lot of emotion that I apparently had not worked through. To this day, I have never, ever gone back and looked at that book ever since it came out. The hard, Another hard book, the other hard book that just pissed me off was Raven Song because fucking Gordo, man, that guy was a pain in the ass to write. It was, I finally got it, but Jesus, that gave me so much freaking trouble trying to do write his book. The easiest? I could go with How to Be a Normal Person, but I think that would be too pat of an answer. The Lightning Struck Heart. I think was the easiest because that's when I really decided to let my freak flag fly. And I just didn't, I gave no shits when I wrote that book. So I, um, 
let it all hang out and oh boy was there <laughs> a lot of stuff hanging out holy crap <clears throat> um see what we got now why did you want the cover of cerulean to be a 3d model model rather than a painted picture well that's not what happened <laughs> there was true story there was a different cover for cerulean before this one, and I loved it. And then powers that be, as it sometimes happens, decided that they wanted to go with a different direction. So I said, okay, cool, whatever. Oh no. And then Allie sent me this drawing. This, it looked like, it almost looked like it could have been done on like a bar napkin. It was basically this cover, but imagine just an outline, like a pen outline on a piece of white paper of just like this part going up here. And I said, oh, okay, yay, that's going to be cool. And then, and then this came back and I was like, what in the actual fuck? What the fuck? Because the dude, Chris Sickles with Red Nose Studios, built this entire freaking thing. And man, I'm, I'm just, that's the reason I went for it because it was Goddamn amazing. That's and plus that's the one they wanted us to go with. Um, did you have any say on the audiobook narrator for Cerulean Sea like you did for the Extraordinaries? Also, I started listening to the audiobook and I'm loving it. No, I didn't. And that was okay because I didn't know if I should have a say and stuff like that. Um and but it all worked out okay because Daniel Henning is just freaking amazing. He is brilliant. He is Linus. He is Arthur. He is all the children. And I have to tell you guys, seriously, I have lucked the fuck out with my narrators, haven't I? You got Kurt and Derek and Michael and Matt Baca and Sean Kristen. I've just gotten very lucky and I am so, so happy that Daniel is joining those people um, in becoming part of my narrating team. So 26 seconds remaining. What the fuck? Okay, well, I guess it's my timer's counting down. It says it's almost over. So I'm sorry. I guess we're going now. <laughs> <laughs>